0: Please be seated. Turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2, or you can find that text there on your outline. Here is really a good example, uh, Colossians 2, the first several verses, uh, really a good example of where chapter divisions can sometimes take away from uh, the authorial intent, uh, the way the author is writing. We added those, or the church added those chapters just to give us reference points, to be able to find passages quickly uh, but here we can sometimes think that there are two different subjects when, in fact, the last few verses of chapter one belong entirely with these chap- these verses that we are now uh, going to study this morning. Uh, you will remember the verses immediately preceding chapter two uh, display paul's toil and struggle to see people matured in Christ, that the very purpose of his ministry is to see people sanctified or to grow complete in Christ, to become all that Jesus would have each of us be in him. And that takes toil, that takes struggle, that takes work, that takes labor. And so he's continuing that sentiment now in the first five verses of chapter 2 as we consider today what spiritual maturity actually looks like. Hear God's word, Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, your holy word. We thank you for how it guides and directs us, it feeds us, it builds us up, it encourages us, it convicts us, it exposes us, it draws us to Jesus. I pray, Father, that as we study today what spiritual maturity looks like, as the apostles revealed by your Spirit, that we would do a self-analysis of this uh, very question. Are we spiritually mature? Are we maturing in Christ And also as a church, Lord, that you convict us that we would be a place that strives and toils and struggles to see men, women, children made mature in Jesus for his glory. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. What is your definition of spiritual maturity? Think to yourself of a spiritually mature person in your mind, who comes to your mind. Why would you say that they are spiritually mature? Is it because they know the Bible very well? Is it because they have a deep theological or doctrinal knowledge? Is it because of the way they treat others? Is it because of something they have done for you personally in your own walk with the Lord? Is it because of the way they lead their family or participate in their family's life? Is it because they are successful at their given profession and, are, and claim the name of Christ as well? Is it because of the way they speak or what they have or what they wear or who they are associated with? Honestly, what is your concept of spiritual maturity? And as we look at this text today, I want us to, at the end of the sermon, ask ourselves again, do we still have the same picture of spiritual maturity that we began with? Will we still say the person that comes to mind is spiritually mature? Will we be able to honestly analyze ourselves and say that we are on the road to spiritual maturity or we are maturing in Christ? You see, Paul's sentiments that are revealed here in these first five verses of chapter 2, which are a continuation of chapter 1, of course, his sentiments towards the people of the Colossian church and us, by extension, reveal what true spiritual maturity looks like. Now, first, I want to point out something that is implicit from the text, and then two points that are explicit from the text about spiritual maturity. First, I would just like to draw to your attention... Paul's personal sentiments, the the way he feels towards this congregation, and then how those feelings transfer into action. I think the first thing that identifies spiritual maturity in us is when we have developed in us, given by God, a deep concern for the well being of others. That is, we're able to somehow look beyond ourselves into the spiritual well being, in particular, of someone else out there, even someone who you may not ever see with your own eyes. That's a sign of spiritual maturity. That God gives. Look at verse 1. We see this revealed in Paul. And actually, look at verse 29 that precedes verse 1 of chapter 2. His description of ministry that is for the purpose of seeing people made complete in Christ. He says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Do you see that he has a deep concern, and it's not just uh, some guy sitting on the porch looking at the world and saying, boy, I feel for those out there who don't have, or I feel for those who have got this or that plight uh, besetting them. He's not speaking of just concerns that have no action. His concern is deep, and so it moves him to toil and struggle to see people know Christ better. He may have been in prison when he wrote this, so the form of toil and struggle for Paul here His concern for others might have been prayer, and it might have been trying to get the message out in letters. Uh, But he was in house arrest, too, and he was traveling, and all this time, it's toil and struggle that comes out of a deep concern for the spiritual well-being of others, even for those who he will never see with his own eyes. That's a sign of deep spiritual maturity. You can't manufacture it. It's something God gives. We can maybe act it out a little bit like we're concerned, but ultimately it's something that inside, with no one else knowing, Your heart churns for the gospel, for the kingdom to extend beyond these walls, this place, in other places. When you hear of the work of God in other places, it stirs you up. It gets you excited to hear what it is God is doing beyond these walls and in his kingdom. That's a sign of spiritual maturity. It doesn't come quickly. It takes time. And we battle between worrying about ourselves and our own world and thinking about what God is doing at a wider level. But Paul clearly, at this stage of his life and his walk with the Lord, clearly not sinless, He's just like you and I in many ways, yet he had come to a point where his very words exude a deep concern for the well-being of others, even those who he had not yet seen himself. He uses the word toil and struggle in relationship, uh, in relation to p- seeing people matured in Christ. In chapter, in chapter 2, verse 1, he says struggle and describes it as a great struggle. And the word struggle here comes from uh, the word agon, which is the same word we get agonized. It's that kind of struggle. It's just not like I'm, I'm expending some effort. It's I'm greatly struggling to see you mature in Christ. And he speaks of the Laodiceans who live just a little bit north of Colossae and Hierapolis and these other twin cities around this little area in Greece, what is now Greece. You have all these churches starting to pop up, and Paul longs to see them, but he can't be everywhere. And in transit, uh, to, to get around, it's difficult. And so his heart burns to see these people doing well and challenge yourself right now brothers sisters think about how you are concerned for the wider church in its growth its development the kingdom of god progressing has it gotten past your walls has it gotten past your own family our church our community has it gotten to the wide expanse of the whole globe and what god is doing in the world that's a consideration that we must uh, bring to bear upon everything we do, just to check ourselves, to see how is it that God, in the gospel of God, Christ, is affecting us. I think one of the great signs of maturity for a believer is when he or she has great concern for the advance of God's kingdom away from here. And I would just challenge you, as I look at our bulletin, and I think we've been, I've been here almost 10 years now, and this is our first ever conference. We've always been involved with missions and, and what God is doing in the world But this is the first time we've been able to have this many of our missionaries that we support personally, both through finances and prayer and sending teams, so many of them coming with us, uh, to be with us on November 17th through 19th. And I have to confess to you, and I've never ever given you a guilt trip about attendance or anything like that. I don't want to start today. I just want to say I would be pastorally disappointed if we weren't about what's going on in these places in the world. I would be pastorally disappointed if we didn't make it some kind of a, a priority to be at some of these things. I want our children to see that we think being about this kind of gathering is, what's, is what the world is about for Christians, the world, a worldview of Christianity. And here's an opportunity we have in November as a church, our small church, to have a missions conference where many missionaries are taking out of their schedule to come and share with us what's happening in Bulgaria, South America, South Africa, China, Philippines, all these places listed here, and then others will come up, will be here in attendance from other churches. I think it's kind of a test in some ways. You know, where are we in our worldview? Are we so stuck in Johnson County that we can't see beyond our soccer games and our events and our things that we do? Are we looking beyond it to see? Are we looking beyond it to see what God is doing in the world? What an opportunity we have to participate in this way as a church and really start expanding our vision worldwide. What's your definition of spiritual maturity? Certainly, first and foremost, we'd have to say, a deep concern for the well-being, the spiritual well-being of others. What God is doing in the church uh, in a wider way. This week I had a great opportunity. It was a surprise opportunity. A friend of mine called me. Uh, he was a missionary to Venezuela, and he had grown up there, then gone went to Moody, and he was on our floor. Nathan and I had him on our floor, and he we called him the jungle boy because he literally grew up in Venezuela. It was very to come to the city of Chicago after growing up in the jungle, literally, and he was a jungle boy. I mean, that's just exactly his worldview was about the jungle. And so I remember uh, Jason and his uh, best friend who also grew up in the mission field on our floor, and we got a kick out of these guys. I mean, they, they uh, were in bare feet their whole life until they had to basically wear shoes in school. And so they would walk around on the furniture that was this wood furniture with their bare feet and just perfectly balanced. And we'd be sitting in the lounge and these guys would be walking around us. And they had blow guns and things that they would show how you could blow a hole through a pop can with these things, or the little nail. Uh, so this guy really grew up in the jungle. And he went to the jungle, back to the jungle, to, to share the gospel, to lead churches there in Venezuela. Well, you know what's been happening lately, uh, politically there. And uh, their new leader, Chavez, has kicked out all American missionaries. There's still some missions efforts happening there. I'm not saying they're not. But American missionaries have almost whole scale been kicked out of the country. And he and his family are one of the people that got kicked out. And he called me this week to tell me the story. He's kind of waiting now. They just got kicked out last month, so they're waiting to see what's going to happen, if there's a way to get back into the country to continue their work. They're planting churches in the, in the jungles there. And he told me, he said, flying out of there in the plane, they just wept as they, they flew out, this feeling like they're, they're being taken away from this great work of God that was happening. But also in his voice, the sadness of missing the people was there, but in his voice was also this great excitement about what God is doing. He said, Tony, you would not believe what's happening in the church. It's just busting open there. The church is just growing, and maybe God's pulling us out now so that the indigenous church can really take root itself and grow. And I got an excitement about what he was saying to me, even though I was sad for him. And then I got excited because I was excited. The fact that what was really starting to excite me in my life is what God is doing in the wider church and what he's doing in these places that we're able to be part of. I don't think I've always thought that way. I'm certainly not arrived, but when I hear this, that excites me. The, the church is way wider than what you and I are a part of, but we get to have great participation in it with giving like we can give, sacrificing like we can sacrifice more than we've done, uh, to propel and promote the church in these places and across the, the globe and the world, caring about the spiritual well-being of others. That's certainly a great sign of spiritual maturity working in our lives and in our in our thinking. There are more explicit ways in which Paul refers to this, however. Look at verse 2 and verse 3, because he speaks about our heart and what our heart looks like. Uh, He's striving and toiling and struggling to see hearts that exemplify these things. That's what spiritual maturity is, is what we read here. Verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. When Paul speaks of the heart here, and when the Bible speaks of the heart, it's not a technical term like body and soul and uh, what the constitutional nature of man is. It's simply saying, using a very simple phrase, the essence of a person. When he's talking about your heart, it's who you really are inside. Uh, We could be many things on the outside, but who you really are on the inside will eventually work its way out in actions. It's the innermost core of our being. That's what our heart is. It's who we really are. It's the seat of our affections, because the seat of our affections, who we really are, become the, become the mainspring of our actions. From our seat of affections come our actions. The Proverbs uh, writer says this as much. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it, the heart that is, flow the springs of life, the things that really are important to you. So he says maturity is a heart that is encouraged, a heart that is knit together with others in love, and essentially a heart that is intimate with Christ. That's what it says in the last part of verse 2 and 3. Let's consider these each. First, it says, his toil and struggle is that we would mature with hearts that are encouraged. Encouraged here literally means strengthened or confident. Uh, we're comforted in a reality, a reality that's transcended. It's not just what we can see, it's a reality Defined by Christ, his eternality, what he has done, what he is doing, what he will do. It's that kind of confidence that gives us encouragement. Let me be very, very clear that we are not to be encouraged or confident because of us, because of something we have in ourselves or some uh, some potential we've got to work out. It's nothing to do whatsoever with confidence in ourselves. In fact, those things should give us terrible pause. But our encouragement, our heart's confidence, comes from one thing and one thing only. Christ it should be in the merit of Christ the power of Christ the sufficiency of Christ the supremacy of Christ overall not self and that's what a mature spiritual heart looks like one that's encouraged it's really a more of a quiet or humble or resolute conviction that all is ultimately well in the hands of King Jesus that's what it means to have a heart that is encouraged as a believer. It doesn't mean that trials won't hit you. It doesn't mean that sorrow won't, won't uh, beset you. It simply means that in the midst of all those things, even when shaken, ultimately there's an encouragement of your heart that it's not just what you see with your eyes that exists. It's going to last way longer than that, way longer, exponentially longer, eternally. And that's a quiet encouragement that comes from knowing that Christ Jesus is your personal Savior and Lord who controls all destiny. You know, confidence uh, should come from outside of us, not from something that we bring to the table. This is best illustrated in my own thinking of uh, uh, the, the game, the childhood game that I love so well, dodgeball. Now, I've read articles recently that say that dodgeball is politi- you know, it's politically incorrect, because, you know, you're trying to nail people, get them out, and then they have to be shamed by sitting out while the rest of the team... I think that's just ridiculous. That's one of the, this is one of the great games ever invented. In fact, I, I'm going to issue some kind of pastoral mandate, if there is one, that we always have at least several games of dodgeball every year in our school, just to emphasize how magnificent a game this is and what it displays. But I've got to say this. When I was in fifth and sixth grade, I was terrified because I couldn't throw the ball really well, and there were some guys that threw it really well, and I, was just ter- I got nervous every time we started picking up teams. I'm like, oh, man, if this guy's over there, we're all dead. We're in trouble. But there was this one guy who I don't know his real name. Uh, we called him The Bear. And uh, so T-Bear was a short name, and uh, I just knew, bottom line, you got to get on this guy's team. He could throw one of those rubber balls so hard that in a short gym, he'd bust it up against the wall. In sixth grade, this guy could practically grow a full beard. <laughs> I mean, T-Bear was tough, and we played in this old gym, and, and I did not like it. In fact, I would find a way to get out of it if I knew he was going to be on the other team. But if he was on my team, that was a different story. In fact, several of us little guys at the time would hover around him, and if there's a ball loose, we pick it up and hand it to him, and he'd go throw the other team. We never hardly throw a ball. We just keep handing it to him, and he, his arm had to almost fall off by the end of these games. But the absolute confidence I had with him on my team, as opposed to if he wasn't, and I was left in my own strength, uh, there's no comparison. And I, I think that it's time for the church to stop being so wimpy, quite frankly. Uh, we, we have Christ, who is the Lord of all, on our team directing its destiny and so anxiety and nervousness about what the world might do or what might happen with this or that's that's not becoming of the one who truly trusts the king of the universe we have christ he is our confidence our hearts are encouraged a troubled and anxious heart as as a practice or as a way of living is a mark of an immature believer we all have anxiety. God gives some of it to keep us from danger. That's not, the pro- That's not what I'm talking about. I mean, a life given to anxiety, a life given to nervousness, obsessing over what might happen wrong. That's the mark of an immature believer, while a heart that is encouraged, one who has confidence in Christ as our Savior and Lord, what he has done, the work of the cross, what he is doing, upholding all things and subduing all things to himself, and what he will do in providing eternal redemption for us. These are the things we rest upon. Check your anxiety level. Maybe it's a simple way to kind of test where you are in your walk. You know, what makes you anxious, brothers and sisters? I hope it's not something. I hope it's not something that is outside the pale of God's sovereign care for you. And what on earth would qualify for that? Think about it. Analyze it. Ask yourself what it is that makes you anxious. Is your heart encouraged? This is a sign of maturity in Christ. But also it talks about our heart in another way. And this is important because the Bible says this repeatedly. A heart that is knit together with others, in love in particular. Look at what it says in the text. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together. What a beautiful picture of knitting where you weave together fabric. Knit together in love. So together implies a community, other believers. Knit together means integrated and woven together. The fabric of our lives are woven together with other believers in love. Not because we're forced upon one another, but rather because God has woven our hearts together in love. Spiritual maturity, according to this verse, cannot happen apart from community. It's the way God designs it. In fact, I think of, uh, as I study church history, especially for teaching Sunday nights, a lot of these men who became great men in the church started out in some kind of a monk. That is, they try to withdraw from society to try to be more holy or get away from persecution or get away from pressure or worldly uh, temptations. But in the end, not one of them, not one of them did any good for the cause of Christ until they came back into community. That's the only time it ever worked out for them. When they came back into community, that's when God used them and their teaching and their and their preaching and what they were saying built up the community and they rubbed shoulders with other believers they shepherded people they exemplified what that looks like to others knit together in love the community has a profound effect on each individual's spiritual maturity i I firmly believe that and i've talked about this many times i know you've heard me say community and loving one another how important it is it comes up in the new testament over and over I'll give you the most practical way that it's helped me personally as, I, as my children start to get older. I start to recognize how necessary community is. I'm reasonably confident, given the training I have, that I could pretty much indoctrinate my kids. It could probably give you a lot of the answers. But I know well enough, personally, that that is not the definition of maturity. It's the application of the things we learn about Jesus. That's what produces and exemplifies maturity. Well, I can't do that on my own. I have to have your help. And what happens is, this beautiful dynamic is, is that I try to teach these things, then I try to live them before them, and I do so imperfectly. Then the community, you are all doing the same thing, whether you know it or not. You are an example. What kind of example is, is up to how you're responding personally to God's call in your life. But they come and they compare what mom and dad says to them. Uh, they compare that to your life and what you're doing, and whether it be in the formal settings you have them, in Sunday school, whatever it is, or at your house or with your kids, they compare it there. Then they go to school. In their case, they go to Westminster here, and they have a comparison there. They, have, they live in a neighborhood with many unbelievers that they know, and they compare their lives. And they have these things that they're starting to compare, and the older they get, the more they're able to compare, and they know inconsistencies, or they know consistencies. And what I've noticed is that, that they see the imperfections, they're realistic about it, more than we think they are, but yet they also see a commonality of dependence upon Christ in the midst of their sin. It's a gospel community, a grace community. It's not one laden with rules that they've got to ascribe to to make God love them more. That's not a gospel community. It's one that continually has to fall upon Christ for everything. And they see it not just at home and not just at church, not just at school, just how it plays out in other people's lives, but in all these spheres and in the context of this complex community, things become solid in their minds about who Christ is. I can't exactly explain it. I can just tell you that's how it's designed. God makes us to grow in community. So we become spiritually mature as we participate in the community, centered around these things, ultimately the mystery Christ. Paul, he exemplifies this in his life so often when he writes to these churches. He leaves them with these thoughts that are so profound and worthy of our paying close attention to. When he's writing to the Corinthian church, that was a veritable mess. I mean, there's just so many things going on in that church. And he starts out by saying this. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. He sees the importance of community coming together as one, and that can only happen when we're woven together. He says similarly to the Ephesian church, which was a more healthy church on paper. Ephesians 4, he says, Therefore, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, and you in this text is plural, to the church, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. A heart that is knit together with others is crucial and critical to your own spiritual development and growth. It happens. Spiritual maturity happens in the context of community. It's God's plan. It's his design. Please take advantage of of clear intentional ways which you could become united to one another. Uh, whether it be uh, regular attendance at your home fellowship group, the things we do in the Lord's Day, other opportunities. Uh, But you have got to make make an effort. I think it's very easy to go to events or go to things and just only keep it on the surface. And I can't tell you what it looks like for you because everybody's wired just a little bit differently. But you do have to have time together, and you do have to get involved with one another's lives. You do have to hear what other people's passions are, what their concerns are, how you can lift them up in prayer. One of the great blessings I've always enjoyed here is uh, Sunday night hearing people just share what their requests are, the things they think about, the things that concern them, and then you can think of them throughout the week. And even if you're not talking face-to-face all the time, uh, you do have them in your mind and heart. and You do become closer. When you see them again, you have a different level of understanding about them because of what they've shared. I hope all of us are making an effort Making an effort as our hearts are encouraged by the reality of this Christ, who is Christ, that we also would be knit together with others in love. But there's something else the text reveals for us in chapter two, or, or verse two and verse three. A heart that is intimate with Christ. This is the way I will summarize what seems to be very complex in chapter two. But let's read it slowly and see. I think you'll see very clearly what is being spoken of in uh, chapter uh, two, verse two, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. Notice closely now. To reach all the riches of full assurance, of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. look at that slowly. to reach, that is we're working towards having full access to all the riches, and you see the term riches is overflowing, of full assurance, that is a confidence or a, a sureness that you are you belong to God, of understanding. And the knowledge of God's mystery, two very similar words, describing just, just little difference uh, to those terms. Understanding, which is being able to see something and process it. Knowledge is just kind of the data itself of God's mystery, which is Christ. That's talking about a heart that is intimate with Christ, that knows Christ. That's what it's talking about. That you know Christ very simply. And that is your life goal and ambition, to know Christ more. So everything you study is to know Christ more. What you do is to know Christ more. Who you serve is to know Christ more. In fact, in Colossians, we read some of the richest verses about who Christ is to teach us the riches of full assurance of understanding. Remember back. Look at, if you have your Bible open to Colossians 1, verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now The most power-packed verses about Christ, in short form, in the whole Bible, in verse 15 and following. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. I want to say that something, and I want you to listen closely, and then I want to talk to you about it a little more. Think of this. Everything we might want to ask about God, and you all have questions about God, everything that any person wants to ask about God and his purpose can and must now be answered in reference to the crucified and risen Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Every question you have about God, Now, what do I mean by this particularly? I mean, brothers and sisters, that everything you think of, ultimately, whatever you interpret in life, whatever you see on the TV, what you hear from people, ultimately should find its way back to what does Christ think of this? What does Christ say about this? What is Christ's eternal value that's displayed in this? We have to have that kind of view to have impact on culture. In other words, we don't answer questions or answer problems that arise apart from Christ. We know no other base answer for everything the world needs. That may put me in the category of simplistic. I realize that. I think it puts me in the category of one who actually knows where the answers are, and it's given by God. I think people will look at it as naive. They'll think there are many other ways. This is making it too simple, I'm sure. But how's that been working for the world apart from Christ? It always comes back to Christ. And an intimacy with Christ is a mark of a spiritually mature person. And I don't mean the person who just says, uh, just talks superficially about Jesus. I mean someone that so deeply understands that he truly is the answer to all this. Uh, That his frustration uh, with watching what's happening in the world or in the church stops with the fact that Christ is the one who must reconcile this. A heart that is intimate with Christ strives after really endlessly in this life, to know him more, to know him better. Note the words that are used to describe Jesus or knowing Jesus better or being intimate with him. Notice them. Riches, the word treasure is used. Mystery, riches, treasure, mystery. Those are all words that evoke eagerness to explore. I mean, I, I, when I hear mystery, I, I want to know what is the mystery? What's the answer? What is it? I'm walking around school and I see these wait till Tuesday signs. I have no clue. No one's let me in on what Tuesday is. In fact, I'm sure it'll be a letdown compared to what it's building up in our minds. But I want to know. See, it's evoking in me an eagerness, and that's the design of whoever put them up. That's what it's working. Well, Paul's saying there's riches, there's treasure, there's mystery, meaning you can never, ever come to the end of knowing Christ completely. You'll study him. You'll get to know him your whole life. You'll participate in the great means of grace that he gives us. You'll keep growing. You'll keep growing. Then you'll get to heaven, and you'll be glorified. You'll know way more than you know now, and you'll still have only started to know Christ. It never ends. I think of all the things I do. My wife claims that I jump into things, and then I jump into other things. and I, I, I kind of I'm, I'm, get bored easy, and so I go to things, and I'm constantly taking on a new thing. Some of you are like that. Some of you more steady people that register on the steadiness chart don't understand us. Nathan got a 68 on the steadiness chart. I got a four. So it just shows you the difference personality. But the point being is, is I, I tend to get bored with things and bounce around. And one of the great things about this ministry that I've loved so much is that we're always doing something new. And I don't mean for the sake of doing it new, but there's so much to do. There's so much at the beginning of a ministry like this. I can see this for a long time. I enjoy that. I mean, how about that steeple? Did you see that steeple going up? That thing's tall. We are gonna have 118-foot steeple on top of that. I hear 134 is what they're trying to get, yes. Amen. This is great stuff. I mean, beyond that, just think of this missions conference. Our first one. I'm so excited about it. I got to go to Bulgaria this year. I got so many things the Lord's doing that are new and fresh and exciting. But the fact is, if you're striving after new events and new experiences and so forth, they will all end up being boring. That will never, ever be the case coming to know Christ better each day. Ever. Never come to the end of that. He teaches something new to me about himself virtually every day. A heart that is intimate with Christ is clearly a picture of spiritual maturity. And I'll be honest with you, it wasn't my first thought when I think of who I think spiritually mature. But in fact, that's what spiritual maturity really is. I love what Paul says really towards the end of his life. But whatever gain I had, I counted it as a loss for the sake of Christ. That's what Paul, who really could have it all, said, that I may know him. That's what I want. That's maturity in Christ. The text tells us something else, finally, in verses 4 and 5. And really, this flows out of these other points. Spiritual maturity also is exemplified by a faith in Christ that is firm. Verse 4 and verse 5. All these things in this effort is for this purpose. Verse 4, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. That is, that people won't come along and try to water down the truth of the gospel, the truth of who Christ is. Verse 5, for though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Clearly, delude here means to add water to something which takes away its true intended taste. And ultimately, a partial truth is an untruth. And that's more commonly the enemy of the church than outright heresy. It's something that kind of looks like it, but really isn't when you press the issue. We know Christ, and as we get to know him better, the way Colossians has given us to know Christ, as we know this, it's so that we may not be deluded with good-sounding or beguiling or persuasive or fine-sounding or plausible arguments. That's what it means. So when someone comes along with something near the truth, you know it's not the truth. And you can turn from it because you know who Christ is. Be ready with clear thinking about Christ to confront untruth. Because often teaching will be respectful of Christ, but it will be hellishly wrong about Christ. Because it does not put him in his proper place of king of the universe. It puts him alongside someone else. That's severe delusion. Delusion. Be ready with clear thinking to confront untruth. And he commends a military metaphor, for those of you especially who appreciate such metaphors, in verse 5, that's what it means. It's a picture of Paul, the general, coming to check the troops for battle. Look what it says. For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Good order and firmness of your faith in Christ are military metaphors. Good order means that your ranks are sure, you're well organized, You've got it together that way. You're ready for battle. Your firmness has to do with you having a solid front. I'm not looking at you and seeing a weak spot over there where the enemy's going to go after. So your good order and your firmness is a a military metaphor for the way the troops look when they're ready for battle, when they're ready to defend, when they're ready to do their mission. How are we on this, do you think? I mean, if if, uh, General Paul came through and he looked at us, we say that our ranks are in good order. Presbyterians generally, at least on the outside, look good in good order. I mean, we got it all organized. We got a chart, a flow chart even. But really, honestly, truly below the surface, could we say that we are in good order? That is, we're well-ordered. We have people in the right places, people using their gifts in the way that they should be using them. Also, are we firm? That is, is there such a weak spot? And we have weaknesses, no doubt. But is there such a weak spot that it could really be subject to the enemy? The enemy could go after that target if we're not careful to shore it up. I think these things all come, strength comes from, our constant focus, and our constant effort to know Christ and the power of his resurrection more. And these things tend to take care of themselves, good order, and firmness as we study and strive after Christ. As you read this text, I think you will see, and I have seen it myself, that an increase in spiritual maturity for every one of you, for me included, for the church, for the church wider than us, An increase in spiritual maturity is not a luxury. It's not an option. It's something that is an absolute necessity for us and for the glory of God. Sacrificial struggle that Paul describes leads to promoting a loving community. A loving community gives assurance to the believers that are therein. It gives them an assured understanding. They know better what the gospel means. They see it lived out. It gives them strong encouragement to be uh, active. Uh, Passivity is not part of the New Testament's plan for the church. We're never to be passive. It's, we're to go out vigilantly for Christ, and it helps guard us at the same time against delusion, against watering down the message. Brothers and sisters, what is your concept of spiritual maturity now? Think of those people that you think are spiritually mature. Why do you think they're mature? Is it because they know the Bible well? Is it because they're theologically or doctrinally astute? Is it because of the way they treat others? Is it because of the way they lead their family? Is it because of something they've done for you for, in the Lord? Is it because they are successful at their given profession? Is it because of the way they speak, what they have, what they wear, or who they are associated with? Honestly, this morning, what is your concept of spiritual maturity? And may it be in line with the, what the apostle repeats to us or tells us today in this text. How are you doing on the road to spiritual maturity? Let us pray. Lord, I thank you for your word and for its direction for us. I pray that we would see application in our own life to what is being said here in these wonderful verses in Colossians and throughout the whole of your scripture. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here that they would have hearts that are genuinely encouraged in you. Lord, I, I pray that you would knit our hearts together in love. Lord, I pray that we would be intimate with Christ in our hearts, and our beings, wanting his approval only. We thank you for what he has done for us, and we want all of it to be for Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Let's turn in our hymnal.